welcome to Trek Untold, the Star Trek podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. On today's episode, we're revisiting some chats we had with past guests who appeared on Star Trek Deep Space Nine this year. DS9 is my favorite Trek series of all time, so it makes perfect sense that I've booked a lot of people my first year doing this podcast from that particular iteration of the franchise. And I could easily spend a whole episode just discussing why I like Deep Space Nine the best, but maybe we can save that for another time. But for today, we're taking a trip back through the interviews of 2020 to hear some of the actors who appeared on DS9 on this year's Trek Untold, including Caitlin Hopkins, Juliana Donald, Hilary Shepard, Phil Morris, Eric Avari, Chase Masterson, Max Grudenchik, and Armin Shimmerman. A quick disclaimer, these are not going to be the full interviews from these guests, just some highlights from a bunch of these episodes that don't necessarily reflect all of the guests we had from Deep Space Nine this year. These are short clips and might even be shortened more than what was originally aired on these episodes, so if you did like what you hear today, you should definitely consider digging through our archives to hear the full episodes and all of the stories these wonderful guests had to tell us. Star Trek and Beyond. Now, before we start this week's episode, I want to ask you, are you following Trek Untold on social media? If you're not yet, please make sure to check out Trek Untold on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook so you can get the latest updates on the guests we're speaking to each week, along with all sorts of other great things we show. If you've been enjoying this show, please consider supporting us by checking out our merchandise on teespring.com stores trekuntold where we've got mugs, t-shirts, cell phone cases, and all sorts of other crazy stuff you can buy to show off how much you love Trek Untold. Or please consider supporting us on Patreon by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. We've got a few different benefit tiers that help us out and give you a little something extra each week for the show. If you're a new listener or a regular listener who hasn't done this yet, please, of course, don't forget to subscribe to us, whether you're watching us on YouTube or on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or any other audio or video platforms you might find this show. And if you've been enjoying Trek Untold, whether it be the audio version or the video version, please make sure to leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you're checking out the show. Or if you're watching it on youtube.com slash today, make sure to leave a comment and give us a thumbs up. Those little tiny things that'll take you a few moments to do will help this show out for light years to come and ensure that other people are able to find Trek Untold and give it a listen. And if you're a member of this audience who has already done one or several of those things already, thank you so much for your support. And if you haven't had a chance to do any of those things yet, we still thank you very much for choosing to listen today to Trek Untold. There's a ton of other Star Trek podcasts out there, and there's only so many hours in the day, so we really do appreciate you choosing this one to check out for the time we're spending with you now. I'd also like to make a quick shout-out to our sponsor at Triple Fiction Productions, who makes some amazing 3D-printed Star Trek-inspired dioramas and props for both Star Trek action figures and Star Trek fans in person. Whether you're a cosplayer or a toy collector, there's plenty of stuff to check out from Triple Fiction Productions, but you're going to hear a little bit more about them later on. So let's begin this episode of the best of DS9 stories from 2020 here on Trek Untold. And let's begin this episode with the very first guest we ever had on Trek Untold, and that's Caitlin Hopkins. Caitlin made her first appearance in the Star Trek franchise in the Season 5 episode from DS9, The Ship, and would later return in the Voyager episode, Live Fast and Prosper, as a different character. But for now, let's focus on the ship, where Caitlin played a Vorta named Kilana, whose crew of Jem'Hadar soldiers were trying to reclaim a fallen vessel from Sisko and his away team, who crashed on the same planet with their enemy's ship. It's a back-and-forth confrontation while also being a war of attrition in a very interesting episode that's very much character-driven. It was also an incredibly difficult episode to film. So let's hear what Caitlin remembers from that shoot. So the year is 1996, and Caitlin Hopkins, at last we have reached Star Trek. 
So uh, your <laughs> first episode okay. for you was on Deep Space Nine, and that was season five, episode two, the episode titled The Ship. So let's start at the beginning. How did you become cast for this role? Uh, my agent got me an audition. Uh, on the, and I remember the audition was on the Paramount film lot in Hollywood. And I, I thought I was going to pass out when my agent called me and told me I had an audition for Star Trek because it was my dream job. It was one of my like bucket list like goals. I'd been saying to my agents for several years at that point, I'm like, please, 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 you have to get me an audition for this show. I really, really want to be on the show because I'd been obsessed with Star Trek since I was a little girl because of my dad. And, um, and I just really, really wanted to audition for it. So they got me an audition and, uh, I, I'm just not sure I ever worked on an audition as hard as I did on that. Um, and I went in and obviously did well enough to book it. And, um, I remember just calling my dad and just like crying and just saying, I did it. I'm on a Star Trek show and feeling like I had won the lottery. (laughs) Because I was going to get to, you know, be around all these amazing actors. And I I really feel that that particular episode was one of the best written episodes. Um, I mean, that Deep Space Nine in general, I mean, all the Star Trek shows, let's face it, they have some of the best writers in the industry. But those Deep Space Nine scripts are absolutely off the charts. And that particular episode, I thought, was really innovative, really brave and really exciting dialogue because basically it was just two people having a negotiation for the entire show. Right. Like it, it, it was very, um, I don't know. I, I thought it was really exciting and I had an opportunity because I guess they hadn't really had any female Vorta on the show. I'm not sure if I was like the first one or the second one or something. I know that I, I, I remember that it it was a really, really big deal that they got the look of the character right. And so I got to go to the Paramount set numerous times and they tried, you know, all types of different costumes and different wigs. I have a couple Polaroids of some of the different wigs that they tried on me before they ultimately, you know, restyled it a bunch of times and ultimately settled on the look that they wanted. Um, and that was exciting for me because I felt like I got to be part of the process of helping create the the look of of that particular um, character, which was really thrilling. Um, and I remember them doing fittings for the contact lenses because they were like hand painted, kind of violet. Like everything on on that character was sort of violet colored, you know, with the ears and everything. Um, and so I, I had to wear these terribly uncomfortable, like, you know, handmade violet colored contact lenses. <laughs> and it took like four hours to do that makeup. It was no joke. And we shot in the middle of the desert and it was a hundred and easily 115 degrees that day. And Avery Brooks and I we're standing on top of the ship, right? Or right next to it and on top of it for a good number of those scenes. And it was metal. So that heat was like going down into that metal ship and like bouncing back up onto us. It was so freaking hot. Oh you have no God. idea. It was that just, should be illegal. Jeez. It was so hot. But what was funny, I mean, it's not really funny, but it was really pretty funny, Matthew, is that 
the two Jem'Hadar actors, right, that like stand behind me for the whole scene with him, one of the the costume that they have on their head, right, it's all rubber. So those poor actors, I mean, they must have been just sweating through their costumes. But all of a sudden in the middle of the shot, like we're, I, I didn't realize it, but one of the actors behind me fainted and fell out of frame. So one of those Jem Hadar, like they're both standing there. And then all of a sudden, like one just falls out of frame and faints because it was so hot. <laughs> and Avery Brooks was, and they had to yell cut. And I'm like, what happened? And Avery's like, um, I think your guards just passed out. And I was like, oh my God, it was so, it was, I mean, it was awful because it was, you know, you worry about people getting heat stroke and actually getting sick. But when you go, they, Avery and I went and watched the like replay, you know, they'll have like little mini TVs and they'll rewind and you can watch the scene that you just did. Um, and I got to, to see it happen on camera and it really was very funny, you know, just to suddenly like have this <laughs> huge actor, right? They're very tall, like just fall out of frame. Um, that's the thing I remember most about that whole day. And Avery Brooks and I sitting when we were waiting to shoot, just talking about Shakespeare and, you know, having these amazing conversations about acting and classical theater and Shakespeare and Chekhov. And, you know, he's, he's one of the great theater actors. Um, and so to have an opportunity to, to talk with him for hours about plays and about theater and about great roles that he has done that he wanted to do that that was that was a real treat for me you know um i would say that episode was probably the thing i'm most proud of that i've ever done on television it was a great honor to be in that episode i'm on that show and i was really really proud of that episode it's it's a very interesting episode it's very unique from all the other d space nine episodes in particular from a lot of the points you mentioned yeah, that's what I'm saying. It was very different. It was very unique. And I think that it was very brave because, you know, to hold an audience's attention on television where basically it's just two people talking about a ship is really interesting. But I think the message of that whole episode was, I don't know, there was just, she was such an interesting character, I think, that they created for me to play. Very complex. And I think that, you know, I think her and uh, Avery, you know, in another point in time might have had a relationship. Call me crazy. I think there was a little bit of a flirtation there. Oh, those Vorta, they're very charismatic people. <laughs> now, your, your character in particular, she was named uh, Kilana. You touched up uh, a lot on the makeup you had to do for the show. And that you were, I believe, the second female, actually, to play uh, a Vorta character. Was I? I think yeah, so. Yeah, I knew I was first or second yeah you've discussed a lot of working with avery brooks in this episode and so i just want to get a little bit more details about your time working with him and sharing the screen with him Uh, i've heard that he's a very intense person he brings a lot of power to the role and a lot of seriousness so what was it like playing back and forth with him in all of your scenes like a master class in acting like a master class like his energy his persona is so big you know like it he that intense is a good word um but, you know, not intimidating, right? Like there there are people who have strong presence and are kind of scary and intimidating. Um, he wasn't. He he exudes a collaborative energy. So you're really in the world with him and in the scene with him. And 
what I appreciated about him was that he was so fully committed to um, the world that we were creating, you know, um, that's what you get with great Shakespearean actors, right? Like they're all in all the time, you know, um, I felt challenged in a really good way, right? Like I, I was going to have to rise to be my best self to hold my own opposite someone of that caliber that had that level of gravitas in his work. And it was exciting. There was an electricity and an energy between us. I felt like we listened and responded really well to each other and we had a great time. Um, and we spent a lot of time, you know, while they were setting up the next shot and stuff, talking about the relationship of these two characters and what the episode was about and, you know, uh, what we wanted to accomplish, you know, in the scene, like what, what did we want the audience to walk away, uh, feeling about this interaction that these two humans have, um, and what was important to both of them. So that, yeah, I mean, that, that was just, like I said, I, I don't know how to describe it except a masterclass. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really interesting to watch because, as you mentioned before, this really is it's a conversation, but it's really a back and forth dance of negotiating between your character and Captain Cisco. Uh, and you know, I find that Avery Brooks, especially on Trek, was always best when we had like an antagonist to bounce off of. And you were just again another great antagonist to have in the series. You were just wry. Uh, you always had something sharp to throw back at him. There was, of course, all the secrets that both of your characters had. Uh, so I just found it just a very interesting dynamic that you shared on screen. Mm, thank you. Well, I, I think what you just said is uh, really interesting to me and really true, which is that well, I think one of the things that made that script so great was that all of those secrets were written in there. That's really exciting to play, right? When you have a secret as a character and when you are trying to one-up each other in a negotiation and it felt like climbing a staircase with Avery playing the scene, right? Like he would up my character and then I would up his character and I would throw a little, you know, something back at him. And it felt like a, like a really good tennis match is what it felt like to play the scene. And I'll never forget it because that's not common. You know, that's very rare that um, in film and television, at least uh, for me, it was, you know, where I, I had not had many opportunities to play that caliber of dialogue with that caliber of actor where the construction of the scene, that negotiation and that one-upmanship and the secrets, all that uh, made it so complex and so interesting. Next up, let's check back in with Juliana Donald, who we heard from in the TNG episode as well. Juliana played an alien named Emmy in the third season episode Profit Motive, which was a Ferengi-centric episode. While Juliana mostly only appeared in the opening with a very, very brief cameo later that if you blinked, you probably missed it, she remembers her parts very well since she got to work with the one and only Armin Shimmerman. So I do want to ask you also about your next appearance in Star Trek, and that would be in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and you were in the season three episode profit motive and that time around you were a character that looks like you had a lot more prosthetics going on so can you talk to us about what you had to wear for that part and uh was it better or worse than what you had to do for next gen i liked it better because i got to play kind of a weird looking you know chick and um so it was a more for me it was a the character was much more fun 
I don't know if it had to do with the fact that Rene Aubergenois, the director, who unfortunately, I think he just passed away. Yeah, just passed away not long ago. Yeah, he was, he's an actor, as you know. Because of that, he wanted to do uh, rehearsals, which is unheard of in television. And um, so we went, and I think we did like three rehearsals. So, which was great, because that meant when we went to shoot, bing, bam, boom. Everything was already figured out, done, no problems. You know, we got it. I mean, it was just, so it was like, for me, it was a thousand times better an experience because because we got to rehearse, because he got to say, well, let's try this, let's try that. And, you know, you got to really kind of find your character. And that was great. And Armin Shiverman is amazing. And um, he is such a generous actor. And he told us the story how during the earthquake he had on that, he had on his face mm. and he was really worried about his wife because you know where it happened i don't know where the earthquake happened at that time at northridge maybe or something and he ran out you know because the whole everything was happening and he jumped in his car he said and he said like almost 10 people got in car accidents because <laughs> he's driving <laughs> he's driving with his with his you know that character's head and you can't that those prosthetics they make you, you have to actually go get a mold of your head and your face and they give you a straw to breathe out of while they're putting the mold because you have to sit there for an hour while it dries. And then they make all your prosthetics on that. Once you get one made, you don't have to go back and do it again. So because I had done the one for the earlier, I didn't have to go back and do it for the second one. But um, but they put it on your face with uh, this, I guess it's this, some sort of glue so you can't, if you were going to just try to rip it off, you'd literally rip your skin off. So they have to, when they take it off, they have to use a teeny tiny little like um, paintbrush, all these paintbrushes, and just dip it in the solution and ever so gently like kind of put it, put the, the liquid in your, in your head till it slowly, slowly, slowly starts to come off till, you know, everything's off. So, but that was a really fun, that was a really fun working experience on Deep Space Nine because um, it was just really fun to work with um, Renee and it was really fun to work with Armin and it was just, you know, um, and it was very, very, you can never say a Star Trek episode is fast. No. But for a Star Trek episode, that was fast. I mean, maybe, you know, you're there for a few days, but you only have, you know, 15 hour days. You don't have 20 hour days um, or 12, 10 hour days. And that's kind of how it was. And I felt like maybe had uh, Renee not had that rehearsal, we could have been there for like a lot longer. Yeah, I don't know if you're aware. This is actually Renee's uh, first time in the director's chair. Do you know that back then? Yeah, I did. I did. And I thought that that was maybe why he was um, wanting to do a rehearsal, but it was a, it's an actually, it's a fantastic idea. I don't know why all television shows don't do that because they would save so much time and money to figure out it. Cause we were actually on the set doing the rehearsal on the set, you know, in our street clothes. So it would save so much time and money to have everything figured out before you actually have an entire crew sitting there you know, so, I mean, maybe, maybe our hours were like eight hours on that or nine hours. It wasn't long. The, the shoot days were not long on that. It was, I just remember it. And most of it was getting in and out of prosthetics. And you mentioned that you guys did rehearsals for this episode. So I imagine that Renee was much more of an actor's director as opposed to some of yes. more folks on yes. being a director's director for themselves. Uh, yes. How would you describe how he directed? 
Well, he was great, and he was really into making sure every beat and every, you know, he was just he was just like working with an actor, you know, he just, he knew about intentions. He knew about, you know, if he asked you to do something, he wouldn't say, Oh, say this line fast. Or he would say, Oh, you're really excited here. So, you know, he would direct you like that. So it was not, you know, it's just not like a lot of directors will say, Oh, can you just speed it up there? You can. And it looks fine, but you know, it's a lot different when somebody says, you know, and on this part, you know, you might, be speeding up because you're so excited. You have to get this. And that's kind of how he talked to people. So he was he was wonderful. And he was a really, really wonderful actor. Yeah, he's one of the guys I wish I could have actually met. Uh, but I never got a chance to meet him, get an autograph, or just say hello. So unfortunately, yeah. that's passed for me. But I'm glad you got to work with him. And I'm happy here that it was such a good experience as well. Yeah, it was. So you mentioned Armin Sherman already. Uh, and your scene mm-hmm. was directly with him because you, right. the scene we first meet you, you're giving Umox to Quark. You're rubbing right. his ears. <laughs> Right, uh, right. I'm just, I'm just curious, you know, just walk us through that scene, and I'm curious if you were worried about accidentally pulling off Quark's ears during that. Not really, because you know it's on there with glue, so it's <laughs> not going to come off. But because we had the, um, we had the rehearsal, and because you know it was just, I mean, I came up with the movements I was doing on the ears myself, um, but he was. Armin is such a responsive actor that the minute, like you, you could almost be touching his ears, and he'd be reacting. So it wasn't like I had to go really hard on his ears for him to to feel it or react or whatever. So but, yeah, he's he's a he's a great guy. And I hear now some friends of mine tell me that he's like considered one of the best acting teachers in Los Angeles. Oh, wow. Now, also in this episode, uh, while Sean is a guest star and the uh-huh. scene you're in. I know there's a stand-in for when the character of the Grand Nagus walks in, but were you able to actually meet Wallace Shawn at all during the, the uh, filming of this I episode? I saw him there, but I didn't meet him, no, because they had just the stand-in. I think they were trying to respect his not taking up too much of his time. So, um, But I did see him come in. But I think he was in makeup when they were doing that part. So aside from giving Quark some umox, which sounds horribly dirty, you also did a scene where Quark gets to meet the Prophets, and they called you back in to be one of the voices of the Prophets, essentially. Uh, what do you recall about how they filmed those scenes and what your role was for that? That one, it, okay, I don't, like, my memory of that episode, 99, 90, 80% of it is that scene I had with Armin. The other stuff felt like the typical Star Trek thing where you come in and you, you know, you're, you hit a mark and that kind of thing. So, for me, that was not as fun as doing the one with Armin. The one with Armin was, you know, great. And fun. And that was the one we rehearsed. Another guest we spoke to in our TNG episode was Erica Vari, when he played a Klingon warrior in Reunification. This time on Deep Space Nine, Eric went from a warrior to a man of the cloth, as he played a Bajoran priest named Vedic Yarka in the season three episode, Destiny. It's a beefier role than what he previously had in DS9, where he spent hours in the makeup chair for what amounted to about 10 minutes on set. But this episode ended up being a challenge for him, but maybe for all the wrong reasons. So you returned then to Star Trek for Deep Space Nine, the season three episode Destiny, and you had a much meteor role this time around. You were Vedic Yarka, who was this wonderfully condescending Bajoran priest who was recently defrocked, who believes that there's a prophecy that's going to come true if Cisco helps the Cardassians on a certain scientific endeavor. Uh, and this episode is about biases and interpretation of facts and information, a, relevant, a, a topic that's very relevant today still. Uh, did the story resonate with you in any way when you first read the script? Yeah, you know, that one, um, 
came at a time when I was in negotiations to do a uh, an episode, uh, well, to do a, um, a TV series, um, and we were having a hard time with, you know, um, all this stuff. And I got this script, and I thought, oh, this is going to, you know, Star Trek, uh, the, um, the show hadn't aired yet. And when I read the script and the concept and all that, I thought, oh, my goodness me, this is this is going to be huge. I just loved it. I loved the concept and I just really wanted to be a part of such a great character, you know. And and, and so it to me, it was so typically Star Trek, the, like the old Star Trek, you know, um, in 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 terms of how they're getting their message across. I, 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 I loved it. I jumped at that opportunity. So how was the makeup process different? Because this time around, you know, you don't have the giant Klingon forehead, but you still have the Bajoran nose piece and the Bajoran priest outfit, uh, the Vedic outfit. So how was the makeup process different? Yes, I, I loved it. I, I loved the, the costume and I loved the earring uh, and the nose was so easy, you know, uh, that, that was... Uh, that was an easy one. <laughs> now you got to share. You got to spend a lot of time in this episode with Avery Brooks and Nana Visitor. Uh, just tell me a little bit about working with those two. You know, I, I love those two. They have such great chemistry together, and I've heard great things about roles with them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, what I remember about that it, it was Nana was so both of them actually they were just so professional. We covered a lot of material. I remember being quite surprised at how quickly we went through pages and pages of dialogue. So there wasn't a lot of time to, to chit chat, you know, uh, uh, a lot of it was, we were going, um, and, and it was very smooth, very, very professional, shall we say, you know, we would, we were pulling close on 16 hour days. And it were long days, and and, uh, and I it really got gave me a sense of how difficult this job can be for someone who's doing this week after week after week. You know, uh, pulling that kind of load. Um, it's uh, mm, you know. So, how did you approach this role of Vedic Yarka? Did you call on some real life experience from? your time uh, going to school with Jesuits, priests, uh, or was, was there something else? Like, how did you create the role of Vedicarca and make it interesting for yourself? I, I, I think a lot, yes, I think the Jesuits perhaps had a lot to do with it. I'd also played, you know, a lot of priests, uh, Friar Lawrence for one, you know, and Romeo and Juliet. And so, uh, so priests, you know, when, when, you're, when you're a character man, bald, priests, and doctors uh, are really good ones. <laughs> you, know, you get to play a lot of those. Um, so th- that that part of it was was easy. And really, you know, for me, honestly, I I I find that the preparation for a role so much it's 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 exploration. You know, uh, a director wants if I can. I think on my own horn here. Um, a director once said, uh, you know, you're like a you're like a curator. You go and you brush away all the sand from around the roll 
and then we see the skeleton, and then you add from there. And I thought, oh, what, what a nice, <laughs> nice description of my work method. You know, <laughs> I, I'd never really thought of it that way. Um, but I think that does kind of say what what um, what you want to do with a role is strip away and get to the root. What is at the bottom of this? And here's a man, and if I can remember, you know, the the plot correctly, but he believed, sincerely believed he was seeing all the signs of uh, what was going to come, and it was on him to convince the rest of the Stark, you know, the, the fleet, to heed his warning. Yep. Or it could come to catastrophic ends, you know? So it's very easy to, to now put yourself in a position where it's easy to grasp that. It, it doesn't take, you know, in realistic terms, how you want to get your point across and they're not getting it. And then, and then to look them in the eye and get your point across, no matter what it takes, you know? And, and just think about that, uh, actions and objectives, you know? Um, so a lot of my work uh, as preparation is stuff that I would do and then throw out once I get to the set and I'm looking the actors in the eye. Um, I, if I may give you a, a very vivid example of this and going back to The Beast, that, <laughs> the movie that I'm determined to plug. <laughs> Check out The Beast of War today. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> But I remember when I auditioned for that, uh, there was a moment when I, spoiler alert, uh, confront uh, George Zunza, wonderful, wonderful actor. Um, and I played it one way when I was at the audition and when I was actually looking him in the eye, uh, it was a whole different take and so much better, you know, because all that bravado that I could show at an audition when I'm just looking at, you know, no one basically on the other end. Uh, it's easy to conjure up, but when you're actually looking at someone in the eye, you know, eyeball to eyeball and you put yourself in that position in the scene and, and, and you know that you could lose your life. Now, now go ahead and say the line. <laughs> Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or a part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. 
All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. Hello, everyone. I'm Armin Shimmerman. Perhaps you know me better as Quark from Deep Space Nine. As your favorite Ferengi, I'm here to promote a sale. It's not self-sealing stem bolts, but my new novel, Illyria. And the first book is called The Betrayal of Angels. Some of you may not know that aside from being an actor, I'm also a novelist. My newest novel is a mystery set in 1583. Its heroes are the historical characters of John Dee, who was a spiritualist, a book collector, and a spy. With him is an unsuccessful playwright named William Shakespeare. Their mission is to investigate a nobleman who happens to be Count Orsino from Shakespeare's Twelfth Night. The book employs comedy, history, and fantasy to tell a page-turner of a story. It reads a lot like Sherlock Holmes, or like one of my favorite shows, Homeland. Please check out my website at www.armandshimmerman, get the name right, .com, or you can get it directly from my publisher at www.jumpmasterpress.com. You can buy it either as a paperback, a hardback, or an ebook. So, why don't you check it out and judge for yourself, or better yet, Give it as a gift to someone. I know they'll appreciate it. Uh, disclaimer, no Latin accepted. We now return to Trek Untold. If you grew up in the 90s, you probably watched Power Rangers. And if you ever watched Power Rangers Turbo, you'd remember our next guest as Divatox, the main villain from that series. Hilary Shepard is that actress, but did you know she also appeared a few times in Star Trek Deep Space Nine? Her first appearance was as a Benzite in the episode The Ship, which we already discussed earlier in the show. But Hillary is remembered most for her portrayal of Lauren, part of the group of augmented humans that Dr. Bashir works with in the episode's Statistical Probabilities and Chrysalis. So let's hear what Hillary had to say about her time as Lauren. So Hillary, you mentioned you came back then to do uh, Season 6. You returned as Lauren, who was an augmented human. She shows up in the episode Statistical Probabilities, and you again played her later mm-hmm. in Season 7 for Chrysalis. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we mentioned you already auditioning for her. Yeah, what, what do you remember about Lauren? Well, I remember they described her as a, she's an infomaniac and the smartest woman in the universe. And so my husband at the time, this is why he's my ex, said, that's the opposite of you. You're really going to have to act. I'm like, ha, ha, ha. <laughs> so anyway, I remember it's my take on it was almost like Hannibal Lecter. I I remember he was so scary and so smart because all these people are dangerous as well. So I remember going to my audition and when I walked in, there was Potsy from, um, you know. Oh, yeah, Anson Mount, he directed that episode of Happy Happy Days, Potsy. I'm like, like, Potsy's going to direct me, really? (laughs) But I had to keep a straight face. And um, I just played it very different than everyone else. They told me I played her very still. I um, just looked, looked everyone in the eye. I was very direct and um, they just said they really loved my take on it. So that was great. Cause I really felt like I earned that part. I had to, you know, audition and, and um, that was really exciting. And then they changed a lot of the dialogue because they loved my interpretation. So they made it to fit me. And I remember Anson wouldn't, 
I was always laying down. If you notice in the first episode, I was always laying down. I was the first person to ever get beamed down, beamed up or beamed down, <laughs> laying down. Because yeah. he wanted me to be like like a kitty cat. You know, that's what I was like. I was like Hannibal Lecter meets a kitty cat, you know. And then, um, yeah, so he wouldn't let me sit up. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the I, second time, I, I, I think I... First one, the first one you danced in, I think the second one you yeah, sang in. Yeah. We'll, we'll cover all that stuff. This- <laughs> and, I, and I said it was Anson Williams. Uh, sorry, it's Anson Williams, not Anson Mount. I, I always get them confused. That's right. and, yeah, Anson Williams. Yeah. Somehow I get them confused, even though they're completely different people. Um, <laughs> as you mentioned, you know, you had your very interesting interpretation of Lauren, but uh, I'm curious, like, what did you pull from for yourself to actually play the character? Aside from Hannibal Lecter, was there someone else that you pulled from to get the um, more amorous part of her? No. Yeah, my cat. My cat. <laughs> so I was going to say really like did. Marilyn Manson or something like that, but no, it's actually your cat. No, All right. no, no. Came my cat. Marilyn Monroe. Oh my God, I'm saying the wrong names right now. <laughs> no, not at all. Not at all. Just my cat. And um, yeah, and a little bit of Catwoman. I I'm I was obsessed with um, Catwoman from the original Batman series. And I used that. I used her. And I also used that when I played Diva Talks. So Lauren was part of this, as they called them on the show, the Jack Pack group of genetically engineered <laughs> augments who were brought yeah. to D-Space 9 to get some help from Dr. Bashir. And uh, this self-proclaimed group of mutants consisted of Tim Ransom as Jack. Faith C. Saley as Serena, mm-hmm. and uh, the mm-hmm. late Michael Keenan as Patrick. And I got to say, like, rewatching yeah. these episodes, you guys had such an amazing rapport together. Did that come from rehearsals, if there were rehearsals, or was that just natural for you guys to come across no, on that screen? You really don't have rehearsals. You literally get on the set, and then you, you rehearse as in so much as you run it, and they tell you where you're going to stand. And, I mean, we had crazy dialogue. I, I had to speak. I didn't know what the hell I was talking about. And you have to really sound like you know what you're talking about. So we all really had to buckle down and concentrate. And I thought it was so well cast. I I, I loved working with these people. They were all so sweet. We all would eat together. And, and I remember after we shot, everyone's like, you guys have amazing chemistry. We're going to bring you back. You know, and and, and it was, I was really happy when they did. Um I thought I was amazed at everybody. I thought everybody was really, really good in their in their jobs, and it makes it elevates your game when everybody's so good on the set, including you know all the obviously the regulars on the show are amazing actors and and really into their jobs. So I, and I you know I loved um, Sadig, you know who, who I had to be obsessed with. He was so sweet because it was embarrassing. I was like hitting on him, and you know, and he just took it really well, and we had great chemistry, you know, and. Um, it was really great when when you're working with such a finely oiled machine and everybody's on their game. It's just like nothing better when you're an actor. Yeah, what do you remember about the first time meeting Sadig? I uh, remember thinking, "Wow, he this is not going to be hard to, to try to hit on him the whole time." <laughs> <laughs> and he was just very humble, very sweet. You know, I've been on shows where you're the guest star and everyone's like, "You're just here for the day, you know, the week." Like, you're not one of us. It wasn't like that at all. He wanted to rehearse. He wanted to, you know, talk about our characters. He, you know, every he, he really was into it and wanted to, you know, do the best job that we could. And he made everyone feel really comfortable. Yeah, I was really impressed with him. I'd heard that uh, you had a tough time doing one of those scenes with Alexander, with, with Sadig, when you had to dance with him. Uh, he tells oh, us about yeah. that. <laughs> I'm the hugest klutz that ever lived. I might have looked like an answer, but I cannot move. And... Ira Bear's wife, Laura, who was a good friend of mine, they she's an amazing ballet dancer and choreographer, and she came in to choreograph the scene, and she's like, oh, Jesus, because she knows me. <laughs> so they had a huge crane shot set up and all this stuff, and I kept stepping all over his feet. They're like, kill the crane shot. 
like you know just show just shoot her from the waist up i cannot i'm the biggest klutz that ever lived it's terrible i'm a lefty i don't know right from my left even you know in workout classes everyone's going to the right i'm going to the left so <laughs> it was just a disaster but it was funny i mean and luckily it was laura who was choreographing it she just thought it was hilarious you know and while we're discussing these mildly embarrassing stories about Deep Space Nine before we get to more uh, nitty-gritty <laughs> stuff here, uh, in Chrysalis, you also had to do some singing in that episode. And I heard you also had uh, a few issues with that part, too, right? Oh, no, no, that wasn't it. Uh, Faith and I could sing, and we that was great. We, we it, was, it was a really hard aria, and they, they sent us, you know, to, like, in, in Paramount, they had, like, a music area, and there's some person was teaching it to us and you know it's very precise and it has to be on point and nobody could sing but me and faith so when we shot it everyone's like you know faith and i are like perfectly you know tuned together and everyone's like <gasps> so we're like that's not gonna work so they we reshot it and faith and i got to sing but everyone else got their voices dubbed <laughs> ah. It sounded exactly. really great in the end results. I was impressed, was but great. now I know the yeah, secret. So we, we, we went into the studio, and Faith and I got to sing with like professional singers, you know. And um, luckily, they let us sing because they realized we could. Because I would have been mad if someone else sang for me. But and the other people were very funny about it. They knew they couldn't sing, and they, and we had to be perfect at everything, genetically engineered. So they were good sports about it. But it was really funny. I've heard that the Deep Space Nine set in particular was more of like a serious set in a lot of ways. Uh, and the two episodes that you did here as Lauren are a little bit more lighthearted. Uh, so how did you find the set environment? How did it feel to you? Yeah, I know. You know what? It, we had so much work to do. We had so much dialogue. We had, it was, you know, we were just working the whole time. It was a very nice set. Everybody was sweet to us. It wasn't a scary set. There's no idiots or assholes on the set, but it's very serious. And um, also you do not change one word. So you've got to get your dialogue precisely and i'm used to improvising and being funny and adding this and so i had to really you know show restraint so we were everybody was very serious but it was it wasn't like stressful it was just more we just knew we had to buckle down i remember they had great food and then i remember there was um fans that would come to the set and deliver like homemade cookies and beautiful things to everyone because there were so many fans i think someone had won a contest and got to come on the show and you know i i remember that but it was, I love, the environment was great. It wasn't oppressive or anything. So all those two episodes you did as Lauren, uh, one of them was directed by Jonathan West, but uh, I want to ask you a little more about Anson Williams, who we mentioned, of course, Potsy from Happy Days. Uh, he did a few mm -hmm. episodes of DS9 and Voyager. Uh, what was it like being directed by Potsy? At first I was like, do I want to take direction from Potsy? <laughs> like, hello. <laughs> but he was actually really good. Yeah, I liked his ideas and it was, it was interesting. And he, he worked hard, you know, to try to not be Potsy. So, you know. Uh, he overcame that so yeah he, he was he was good how would you describe his style of directing was he like an actor's director or is he a director's yes. director oh definitely definitely an actor's director actors who become directors are my favorites because they understand the process they also know i mean there's a lot of directors that will intimidate and yell and that doesn't work for actors you know that just makes you clam up and feel worse you know so he understood the environment you need to work in and collaborative environment about it so did you watch yourself uh, on any, any of those episodes when they first debuted on TV? Yes, I did. I mean, this is so strange. So back then, you would have to hire, there's one guy in Hollywood, anytime you're on the sh TV, 
he would find it for you and he would tape it for you. And he lived in this house in Hollywood. This, I, I can't remember his name. He, he was really overweight and, and almost like a hoarder because every single room was just filled with VHS tapes. And you'd call them up and you would pay him and go, look, I'm going to be, I don't know when it's on, but I'm going to be on Star Trek. They didn't even tell you when your shows are on. <laughs> so I, he would track it for you and find you and then he would tape them for you. So I got to see, I don't think I watched it live because you didn't know when it was on. And I, I had two children at that point and I think I was also shooting power. Oh yeah. I was shooting power Rangers at the same time when I did the second episode. Um, they were really nice with my schedule, you know, and I just had a baby. And, um, so I was shooting the Power Rangers series at the same time, the second episode. So I, I didn't have time to watch myself so that the, this guy would tape everything for me. Phil Morris is an actor whose resume is as long as a copy of War and Peace. And that's not really much of an exaggeration. He's been in everything and chances are he was in everything at least two times. He also happened to appear in the Star Trek franchise a whopping five different times. Starting as a child in the original series episode, Miri returning decades later in Star Trek Three, and then twice in Star Trek Deep Space Nine, and one final time in Star Trek Voyager. In DS9, he first played a Klingon warrior named Topak in the episode Looking for Parmok in All the Wrong Places, and came back as a Jem'Hadar soldier, the third Ramada Klon, in fact, in the episode Rocks and Shoals. So let's hear a bit from Phil about his time on DS9. So, Phil, let's go ahead warp speed now to 1996, and we're going to talk about your first appearance in Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's in Season 5, the episode Looking for Parmok in All the Wrong Places. And you got to play <laughs> the Klingon warrior Topak. So, back yeah. when you first auditioned for this role, did you know you were auditioning to be a Klingon? Yes, I did. I was aware. And um, and I believe Andrew Robinson was the director yes. of the episode. And, uh, and mm. so... My, my goal was to scare him. <laughs> my goal was to to shock him. You know, again, remember we were talking about you know make the interesting choices. Yeah. Um, so that was my de- that was my desire. I mean, I knew my lines. I knew the dialogue. I knew all that stuff. But so did everybody else, right? Everybody else knew the dialogue. They knew the lines. They had all. But what was going to get me over? What was the engine? What was my motivation? My motivation was to scare him. You know, this guy was a bad enough Klingon that he gets kicked out of the Klingon Federation at the end. That's how horrible he is. He's so bad, Klingons don't even want him. So I had to do something. So when I went into the room and I did my stuff, I literally didn't even look at the casting director who's reading the dialogue as Quark or whoever I was, I was supposed to be acting opposite. I literally threw every bit of line and dialogue to Andrew Robinson. I don't know if he remembers it. But he was like on the edge. His eyes were like bugging out, and he was on the edge of his seat, like I was going to attack him. And um, and I got it, you know, I got it. So, you know, I guess there is something to that note about you know making the the interesting choice. But what I what I really remember about that are two things. One was the wardrobe was with the the costume uh, fitting, which is what we were talking about for the other show, the other uh, episode. But this I do remember vividly. Because those are such binding costumes. They're oh, so yeah. overlaid with leather and, you know, so much brocading. And, oh, my God, it was, it was almost unbearable. And then the head cast that I had to do for all of the facial prosthetics, right? And the teeth. They give you Klingon teeth, right? So they do a, a, a casting of your mouth as well. And then they, they make a bridge for you of Klingon teeth. Oh, wow, custom oh. Klingon teeth. 
It's custom Klingon teeth, which they keep. You don't keep anything. You, they keep it all. Which is so um, bizarre, because it's like, are they going to reuse that for someone else? Like, what are they doing with it? Well, they probably have a, a history, a museum of Klingon stuff. You know what I mean? Why not? <laughs> um, but what I do, the, the, most, the most fun thing that I did on that show was they gave me an actual Batleth to bring home. Oh, wow. To work with. Uh, actual heavy-ass, pointy, nasty Batleth that I, I, uh, I brought home to work on the choreography that they showed me. So I take this Batleth out. I live at the beach. I take it out to the lifeguard station. And I wish I had a footage of me working this thing, man. I was a ninja <laughs> with this bad boy. And uh, I, I, I learned to use it so well. I don't believe they use the double other than when I was getting hit, right? Yeah. So I was really proud of that. I was really, really proud of that. And um, again, it was a, a wonderful experience. And Armin Shimmerman and I are really good friends. I don't see him all the time again. But we had the same voiceover agent. I'd see him quite a bit at the office. And uh, we talked about that all the time. And uh, one of my favorite uh, convention photos is a picture of me as Thopak. Um, leaning over Quark, just spewing the most horrible, vile things at him. Um, it's so much fun. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad so that you mentioned fun. that it was just you guys doing that battle, because as I was watching the episode recently, I was like, man, where's the double? I was trying to look for him, and it was just you guys. So that was very impressive. Yeah. Uh, yep. So yeah, I'd yeah. like to hear a little bit more actually about working with Armin, because we've had other guests who've worked with him in scenes on DS9, and they've described him as being like a very reactive actor, very open actor. Uh, how would you describe working with him? Armin is, is um, he's very present. You know, he's there. You look at him, he, he looks back. He, he is in, unpredictable. He's a bit of a live wire, right? Um, he, he, and I think that's the choice he made for Quark. You know, Quark is a bit like um, a cricket on a hot stove, right? Um, he's bouncing all over the place, trying to sell. He's a hustler. He's, he's that guy. Um, and that's how Armin played him. Armin is far more uh, intellectual, obviously, far more cerebral. He is a, a Shakespearean savant um, as a as an actor, as a as a craftsperson. Um, but in the scenes, he was just couldn't be better. It was so again fun. I guess fun is the watchword for me <laughs> in all of this because that is what I aspired to have as a child. That's what I thought. I wanted, I did not want to work in a nine to five office. I did not want to work in a job where I couldn't play, where I was working to then go play. I wanted to play while I worked. And I, and I realized that that's exactly what I've created. Everything we've been talking about, everything that I do, all that I am is about working to play. And it has been incredibly successful. So working with people like Armin, who just plays and is a great playmate, um, I can't get enough, man. It's great. This being your first time wearing all of this kind of seriously heavy-duty uh, facial prosthetics as opposed to just like heavy makeup, uh, did it affect your acting anyway? I mean, from my point of view, of it didn't. But you know, I'm just curious what it is from your perspective. Of course, of course. It's, 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 uh, you're, you, you, you don't have to guess who your character is. You know, you look in the mirror, you know who it is. You feel your forehead, you feel the ridges, you know what it is. You know, you, 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 you touch your teeth, you know what's going on. Um, you, you, you wear the wardrobe... It all lends to the reality, the given reality we're trying to present, right? And the more aids you have like that, the better. Um, I, I love it. I rely on it. I, I, lean, I don't rely on it. I lean into it. I lean into the characters because 
you were being given such great assistance with these amazing makeup artists and these amazing costume costumers and stunt people and special effects people that are there to help make the illusion real. Um, yes, it's a fantastic way to play because you can't escape your character. You can't just get out of your wardrobe, you know. You got to take the whole thing off. That takes hours. So you're in it to win it, man. And so we mentioned this episode was directed by Andrew Robinson, who we all know as Garrick. We all know and love him as Garrick, of course. Uh, mm-hmm. And this was also the first episode of Star Trek he had directed, but not his first time directing anything ever. But uh, how would you describe the way that Andrew directed? He's very energetic. He's got a great energy. And you need it. You need, especially with an episode like uh, Looking for Parmok. Because if you realize or remember, um, Almost everybody's in that episode. I mean, every cast member is in that episode having some sort of uh, romantic entanglement of one uh, sort of another or another. And so your mind has to be quite agile as a director to compartmentalize and make sure everything's straight and up to date. And you're giving everybody the right amount of motivation, not too much, not too little, the right amount of comedic you know, tension for Armin and myself, the right amount of uh, to me. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I found him to be incredibly supportive. He was so excited that I'd come back and, and had all those moves because it made our shooting day quicker, right? You don't have to just, like, take me out, put in the stunt guy, all right, cut, uh, Phil, stand there, close up. You know, you could do it all in one take. So um, he was really excited about that, and I think he was really excited about, about directing the episode, you know? Um, and I, I found him to be terrific. I didn't... Did I know it was his first episode? I think I knew intellectually it was his first episode uh, of, of Star Trek directing that, but it didn't. It didn't show. It didn't. I didn't feel it. You know, he he was just as uh, accomplished as any other director I'd worked with. So, and, and we brought him so much. I mean, um, the characters were so full. I mean, Joseph Rusk was in it, and um, the lady who who played Grilka was fantastic. I mean. They're all such good actors. You know, you, you almost have to get out of the way as a director. You know, you're working with Armin Shimmerman. I mean, you don't want to get in that guy's way. You know, and then I was bringing so much as Thopak that he just was like, all right, and action. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> now, most important question about this role you had as Topak: Did you get to keep that Batleth that you were training with? Oh, no. Like I said, they keep everything. Oh, that's disappointing. Yes, I might be able to get one from a convention, but I'll have to pay for it. Yeah, because I imagine you can't easily sneak a batleth off the set. So, yeah, that's unfortunate. <laughs> yeah, it's very tough. Of course, we couldn't do this best of 2020 episode without revisiting one of my favorite characters of all time, and that's Rom. Max Renchik spoke with us earlier this year and was the first guest to do a video episode with us, which made me even more nervous than I usually am with this show. We talked about plenty of things unrelated to Trek, but not to worry, since we spent even more time discussing Rom. Here's the story of how Max found the look, the feel, and in particular, the voice of everybody's favorite lovable Frankie, Rom. You know, I, I actually was kind of interested in that voice, too, to be honest, uh, because I was trying to figure out what the inspiration was for it. Maybe you can tell me what you went for inspiration-wise, because it felt to me like it was meant to be more of like a, a traditional, uh, I want to say like a film noir style villain. Like, again, I mentioned Peter Lorre, so I kind of felt yeah. there's something in there that was like very uh, scheming, nefarious, and similarly with the body language, I kind of read it as a lot like Joe Egypt from Maltese Falcon. So um, on that note too, actually, yeah, like how did that character evolve from TNG and your inspiration for the character in TNG versus once you got to Deep Space Nine? How did all these things come together and evolve into what we all now know and love as Rom? When I started out with the teeth, this probably goes back to next gen. 
when I started out with the teeth, I wanted it's kind of the same thing with the makeup, you know. Uh, I can I can take it. I can take it. <laughs> I wanted the teeth hurt a little bit, and I wanted to sound like I normally sounded, just with those big teeth. I I thought I could make myself sound like me, and uh, the teeth wouldn't be a big deal. Well, when I was talking like me, they began to hurt, and they had that snaggled tooth that hits me. Where this? I don't remember which way. Which way? I think it was this way. Snaggle tooth hits me, and the, 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 the teeth take up a lot of room in your mouth. Then I thought, I don't know where this came from. Maybe I was watching some show or something. But then I thought, I'm going to go. Maybe it came with the costume, because the costume made me walk a certain way. I'm not going to fight the teeth. I'm going to let the teeth take me where they take me. And, so, and, and that meant not hurting. I was looking for a way so that they didn't hurt me so much. When I opened my mouth like this and spoke a little slower and had the sound come from the back of my throat, then they didn't hurt because I'm over-pronouncing things and I feel like I have more time to say what I'm, what I need to say. Yeah. And very little pain, uh, compare, relatively speaking. So did I answer any question there? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, you know, when I, when, I, when I hear the ROM voice, especially later on, when you're doing that version of the ROM voice, it almost reminds me a little bit of like the Cowardly Lion, like Ray Bolger's Cowardly Lion from well, The Wizard of Oz. That's my, that was, he's my inspiration. Yeah. I'm, I'm afraid it's too much. My fear is it's too much like him, but yeah, he was uh, my inspiration in that uh in, 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 get in that voice. Yeah. Cause that's always, you know, whenever I try to imitate the round voice myself, I always end up kind of sounding like the cowardly lion. It's, it's for me when I do it, it's like workers of the world unite, but I'm too cowardly lion. <laughs> well, that's pretty good. I think that's pretty good. Bravo. Yeah. Oh, thank you. I, I've been working on that for quite some time. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I was going to actually ask you for a critique of my round voice, but that's where I've got it. So basically the key, it sounds like to you is kind of to have it more in the back of my throat back and slow throat. down probably. Right. Back of the throat. Yeah, and Rom is slow. Yeah. Rom is, you know, why? Not why. Why? You know, it, uh, there's a slowness about him, a deliberateness about him. That is, uh, yeah, yeah. That fit. That fits. That makes that fit for me. So for me, it does. Besides chatting with Rom, we also spoke to his wife, Lita, a.k.a. the lovely Chase Masterson. Chase answered a ton of listener-submitted questions in her episode about her time on the space station, but the story that I liked the best was when she discussed the relationship between Rom and Lita, and the episode that really kicked it off and began their on-screen romance. I read that your first kiss ever on screen was actually in Deep Space Nine, and it's that episode, uh, Dr. Bashir, I presume, which also has got Robert Ricardo in it. I just watched that one before we spoke, in fact. Can you actually give us a little bit about uh, that episode and what it was like smooching a Ferengi? Yeah, well, that is a very good question, one that is oft asked. What is it like kissing a Ferengi? First of all, you get your their makeup all over you. Now I know how you guys feel. And, uh, you know, hey, it hurts. No. Tom um, was so sweet with his little snaggle tooth. And um, Max faithfully, loyally kept and treasured those teeth far after Deep Space Nine was over. And he wore them in 
uh, conventions. We used to do something called the Ferengi Family Hour, and he would wear his Ferengi teeth. And uh, I don't know. I mean, it's you know so funny. I know I'm off the subject here, but when he popped those teeth in, he would become Rom. Like his posture would change, his feet would turn out, he would develop that walk, and it, he was just hilarious. It was all about the teeth, babe. Um, <laughs> That episode was is very near and dear to my heart. I have to say that's my favorite episode that I shot in the series, partly because I got to work with the inimitable Bob Picardo. Bob is uh, Bob is a brilliant actor, obviously. He's also in, incredibly intelligent and sharp, just a mile a minute. And he never misses a beat or an opportunity to fill a moment. And so it was really fun with that, seeing him work and working with him and getting the strength in Lita, which occurred in that episode, which was that, you know, Rom would not profess his love. So Lita wasn't going to wait around and pine for him. Lita felt like her love was not being returned. And, you know, whether it was that Rom was too shy or it was just not happening, Dr. Bashir, I'm sorry, Dr. Zimmerman, uh, Picardo made this offer for Lita to go and have her own cafe. And so that sounded a lot better than not being loved by Ram and being treated badly by Quark. So I went off. And so there we go. Um, here's a funny little story about that moment uh, and Bob. So as we was running, uh, going off onto the uh, shuttlecraft with Bob Picardo, leaving Deep Space Nine, never to be seen again, we hear this voice wailing in the distance. Little Hey, hey. <laughs> and he says, Lita, I love you. And I say, oh, Rom, as I always said, oh, Rom. And we're going to live happily ever after, right? That's great for us, but not great for poor Bob Picardo because they hadn't given him an exit line. Now, what is Bob going to do? Just give the scene to us while we kiss and he fades off? Not Bob Picardo. <laughs> Bob went where no actor has ever gone before and asked for an additional line. Now, in some shows, you can do that. On Star Trek, it's just a basic rule you don't. Because the writers are so damn good. They, they've already written it as perfectly as it could be. There's nothing else that could be done. And the, 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 the rhythm, the flow of the dialogue is so good. But nevertheless, Bob asked, and it went through all these producers' offices and came back down. Yes, Bob, you can have a line. What would you like to say? He said, let me try a couple things. So the episode that you saw, the cut, was uh, a case that he did, whereas Rom and I are kissing. He follows this alien woman off onto the shuttlecraft, and he says, uh, excuse me, miss, uh, have you heard about my work with Kama Sutra? <laughs> and we all thought was really funny and that's that's the version that aired the one that didn't air which I thought was even funnier was his first take which is as Ram and I were kissing he follows this woman off onto the shuttlecraft and he says uh, excuse me miss <clears throat> have you heard about my work on Star Trek Voyager <laughs> that's awesome <laughs> <laughs> fantastic so um, yeah it was just a blast to work with him and you know, I think, my gosh, people that I got to work with and, you know, what a fine cast, this, all of Star Trek, really. Such, such fine actors. And finally, let's hear from Armin Shimmerman, who was Quark for seven seasons on Deep Space Nine and one of the most beloved cast members from the series. 
In our chat, we covered a lot of ground about DS9, but here are a few of my favorite moments from this episode, including a story about a rare daytime television appearance of Quark on a show that didn't have Star Trek in the title. Now, we had a lot of folks who wanted to know more about your relationship with Renee. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, one of the things that I think a lot of people brought up was the episode where Quark and Odor are stuck on a planet together. That's the episode called The Ascent. Um, but I just recently rewatched an episode called Crossfire. Uh, and I think that's honestly like one of my favorite examples of the chemistry that Quark and Odo and that Armin and Renee had on set, uh, because it's a very much episode about exploring Odo's humanity. Um, so I'm curious if you have any memories about working with Renee and uh, the, the rapport you guys had on screen together. First, let us all mourn the passing of my good friend, Renee Bergeron. That was very hard for me, for his family, for my family. We were very, very, very close friends. And, and we became close friends during the shooting of that show. Um, I told you I did theater. Uh, Rene Aubergenois was, and to some extent still is, a prince in the theater. He, he is one of those actors that when you stand on stage, you can't help but be intimidated by. Um, I adore him. Uh, I love him and I miss him. So, uh, how did this love affair, this bromance start? Uh, ironically, we had done a play together prior to working together on Deep Space Nine, where we never, well, barely ever spoke to each other. We were not in any scenes together. And pretty much by the time I was finished acting, he had just begun his role. So we never saw each other on stage either, which meant that there wasn't a lot to talk about. And although we nodded at each other in respect. Um, there wasn't any rapport between us. Okay. Um, when we started on Deep Space Nine, they very nicely, accidentally, uh, put us next to each other in the makeup trailer. So his chair was separated from mine by, I think, no more than two to three feet. And because we were both in the makeup trailer, in the makeup chair for a long period of time, we talked a lot. We talked about ourselves, about our families. We talked about the scene that we were about to do. We would run lines. Um, and we began to find, at least I began to find, that we had a lot in common. Uh, our backgrounds in the theater, our appreciation of the, of the work that we did, our uh, respect for the artistry of what actors do. Uh, we had, turns out we had many friends in common because we had worked in plays, not together, but people who had worked with us in the plays had worked with each other. Um, and as we began to bond, um, our affection for each other grew and grew and grew and grew. And the writers who are no fools began to see that not only in the dailies, but also as they, when they came backstage to visit, how close the two of us were. So, um, they began to write that into the show as well. But I am blessed that I had not just seven years, because our friendship went on after the show as well. I had all those years uh, to be accounted one of Renee's friends. Now, there's one other appearance too I wanted to mention about uh, Quark, unrelated to being on D Space Nine. That's when you were on Regis and Kathy Lee. Do you remember much about going on that show? I love watching that clip too. That's on YouTube. It's one of my favorite things to just constantly watch again and again. Yeah. Um, again, flattered, honored. Uh, it required a first-class trip to um, to New York 
with all the all the perks that come with being treated like a celebrity. Um, however, the and it was lovely working with the two of them and talking to them was challenging. Um, um, Kathy Lee just kept looking at me as though she was trying to figure out where the seams were. Where, how do you put that stuff on you? And she couldn't because Karen's work is so incredibly good. But I must tell you this. Should you look at that uh, sequence again, when I come out as Quark and, and, and Karen had the, the required two hours to put the makeup on before I appeared on camera. So everything was absolutely perfect. However, they told both of us before we went on that I would have to come back in about um, 20 minutes as myself. Now, the removal process, which people never ask about, was half the time of the, of the putting on process. It, was, it, it took an hour to remove the makeup. They said to us, you have to have it off in 20 minutes and he has to come back as himself. This stymied Karen when she thought about it, and uh, and me for that matter. So, in order to make that twenty-minute deadline, she tossed a bucket of solvent and and alcohol and isopropyl meristate on me in order to remove the makeup as quickly as could possibly be done. Now, when you see the segment again, when I appear as myself. You may see me just doing that because the fumes from the alcohol still surrounded me and I was inundated with these fumes. And though I'm doing my best to react as though they're not there, Mm. all I can smell and all I can feel and all I can sense besides their lovely company was the fumes from the alcohol. So it's a little, I'm not drunk, but, but it, it, it was overwhelming. It, it, it was like standing over, you know, a, a, a carload of open paint cans. But you, you, you muscle on, you, you do what you can. And, uh, um, and it turns out very well. It turns out very well. Yeah. So there you have it. That's our best of DS9 interviews in 2020. Now, you might notice we didn't include Alexander Siddig in this because, well, he was last week's interview and I felt like it might be rushing it a little bit too much to put him in the highlights that quick, even though his episode was really great. And if you haven't heard it yet, I recommend you go back and take a listen to that one. And for that matter, if you're a new listener to the show and you've enjoyed anything that you heard this time around, I hope you'll check out some of the past episodes from all of these guests to hear more stories from other episodes of Star Trek shows they were in, as well as additional films and television shows that they were parts of, and updates on what these folks are doing today. As a final note for this episode, this is, in fact, the final show of 2020. And as we head into 2021, I want to let you know we already have a fully packed year ahead of us. I've already recorded a bunch of episodes, and I can tell you we've got interviews with more character actors, more stunt performers, visual effects people, composers, and more from all the different Star Trek series. So I hope you stick around and get ready for another excellent year from this podcast. It's been a real crazy one so far. I can't believe some of the folks I've spoke to already. And the only way to go from here is up. And just because you made it all the way to the end of this compilation episode, how about I give you a special treat? I'm going to give you, that's right, just you right now, a hint for who is our guest next week when we return. Now, it's a dark journey ahead of us to get to the new year and next Thursday, so all I'm going to say is you should light a candle for him. So get ready for 2021 because Trek Untold is coming back in a big way. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. 
Whether you're listening to this show on iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or any audio platforms, or our YouTube channel, youtube.com Nerd News Today, please make sure you subscribe to whatever format you're listening to so you can ensure you get the new episodes of this show as soon as they come out. And that's every Thursday on audio platforms and every Sunday on YouTube for the video version. Please don't forget to check out our Teespring store to check out some of the merch we have for this show at teespring.com slash stores slash Trek Untold. You can also support this podcast by visiting patreon.com slash Trek Untold to become a Patreon. We've got a few different tiers that offer some different benefits that you might enjoy, so please take a look if you can. If you want to get updates on who's going to be on the newest episode of the shows, please follow us on social media on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook, all at Trek Untold. That's one word, no spaces, Trek Untold. But one of the biggest things you can do to help out this show is to interact with us. Whether that's leaving a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast, or leaving a comment or giving it a thumbs up on YouTube. It costs you nothing but time and helps out this show tremendously to get more attention and get more listeners to help this podcast continue to grow and expand. So until next time, I'm Matthew Kaplowitz. This has been Trek Untold. And remember, fortune favors the bold. <laughs>